One of the least read books of the Old Testament, I wager, is Leviticus. Leviticus is uh, the list of all of the laws that Moses gives in addition to the Ten Commandments of the ritual laws, purity laws, dietary laws that the Jews were commanded to observe as a covenant with God. Um, So which animals to sacrifice on which days and how to sacrifice them, how to build the altar and the Ark of the Covenant and the temple dwelling, which was a tent at first in the desert and then in Jerusalem later a building. But all of the sort of minutiae and ins and outs of what God expected them to do. So it doesn't make for very gripping reading. It's a lot of like, take two she-goats and one heifer and then two turtle doves, cut the turtle doves up, but kill the one, but don't kill the other. And it's not exactly exciting, but there are gems in there if you go digging. One of which is Leviticus chapter 16, which uh, details what the ritual requirements were for, were for the Day of Atonement, which to this day, Jews celebrate the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. It's a day of fasting on which the entire nation... Um, All the Jews are to atone for their sins or make atonement. And up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there was also ritual, priestly atonement done through um, the sacrifice of animals. And specifically, the high priest, this was the only day of the entire year, by the way, that the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies, which was the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary. You have your big temple, the court of the Gentiles within that, the holy, the sanctuary, which was like the building inside the courtyard. And then inside that building was the tabernacle, the, the veiled inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, which no one was, expe- was supposed to go except the high priest and only once a year. And it was on this day, the Day of Atonement. And then the people brought two goats to the high priest at the entrance of the sanctuary, the, the building, at the doorway. And he was to cast lots or roll dice as to which of these goats would have to die. And which, so which one, in other words, would belong to God as a sacrifice for sin. So he'd roll the goat, or he'd roll, roll the dice, and then he'd pick the goat that lost, and he'd go in and he'd kill that goat and offer him to God in the Holy of Holies, along with some incense and other things. And then the goat that survived, the, quote, escaping goat, which was later rendered in English the scapegoat, would be taken, the priest would take his two hands and put them on the goat's head, and then out loud confess all the sins of the Israelites. I don't know how long that took. But he was supposed to confess out loud the sins of the Israelites on this goat, and then his assistant would take that goat out into the desert. That goat didn't belong to God. He belonged to Azazel, which is interpreted Satan. This was Satan's goat. And he was to be exiled out of the city. He would carry all the sins of the Israelite out into exile in the desert and presumably die of starvation or thirst or whatever. The attendant, before he, brought, before he was allowed back in the city, had to purify himself of all the sins that the goat had taken out with him. And then he could be reinstated. And that was the Day of Atonement. That was supposedly getting rid of Israel's sins, both with the relationship to God, this sacrifice was to please him, and then this goat would take all of our grossness away from us. This is the scapegoat. Okay, why this weird ritual that the Jews had to do year in and year out, new scapegoats every year because they had new sins every year? Why this weird thing? Well, one of the reasons is that it's something we do unconsciously anyway. Not literally with actual goats, but we tend to displace our sins, our shame, our guilt, our frustration, our anger onto others for two reasons. 
One, it shields us from having to confront our own guilt if I'm just concentrating on other people's problems. But it also creates this ersatz or false sense of community. Think of like the Roman gladiator times where they would bring out people to be killed or eaten by animals. How brutal we think, ugh, it's so barbaric. But we do it in all sorts of figurative and metaphorical ways too. We, we bring out an endless line of celebrities who have done something shameful and we, we smear them across the headlines and then for you know, a few days they have their 15 minutes of shame and then the next one we need to shame somebody else and somebody else and somebody We constantly throw these sacrificial goats uh, outside the city. We say that this person is now disgraced. You know, and we, it's our favorite pastime, or one of our favorite pastimes, to do this because we have this inner desire to ignore our own faults and to rally around a common enemy. I think this, this also happens on a smaller scale, like in families. Right? When we, we point out somebody, this is the person, this is the source of all of our problems, all of our frustrations, and we all hate that same person together. Have you ever been that person or been part of that dysfunctional uh, ersatz false community? René Girard, this philosopher uh, from the last century, said that this is the basis of all human society, is scapegoating. That we all, we need, in order to have some kind of identity, some group uh, community identity, we need to have a common scapegoat, a common enemy. And this, of course, erupts in really disgusting and disturbing ways, like in the 20th century. The Holocaust and um, Stalinism and, and Nazism and all, all the ways that, that scapegoating just became this destructive, demonic, satanic force for, for death because of this irrational need to, to get rid of our own guilt or frustration onto someone else. Well, what does Jesus do about this? René Girard said that Jesus is the one that unmasks this dysfunction and finally cures it. How does he do that? By becoming the one innocent scapegoat. He takes on all sin, every single sin that's ever been committed from Adam and Eve onto the last soul that God creates. He takes it all on himself. And he's the only one that has absolutely no sin himself. He's the only pure, unblemished Lamb of God. And do you remember in Luke's account of the crucifixion, when Jesus is on the cross, he's just pardoned the good thief. He says, Today, this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. And then he breathes his last, hanging there on the cross, the slaughtered scapegoat of all humanity. And that soldier looks up at him. Remember what he says? Truly, this was an innocent man. And it says in Luke at that time that there was a complete eclipse of the sun, that the whole earth was dark, and there was an earthquake. And during that earthquake, the veil in the temple on the Holy of Holies was split open that inner sanctum that was only meant for the high priest on that one day when they would offer the scapegoat, the, the sacrifice of atonement, that was now obsolete, had been torn open because Jesus, we were looking at the one scapegoat who could actually save us, who could actually unmask our dysfunction and give us a true community, not based on a common enemy, but based on love, a common love, a common bond of family, that you are my brother or sister. We are all sons and daughters of a common father. That's what Jesus came to give us. Now, what do we see in the reading today? This gospel reading is just one of the classics of Western literature, classics of the New Testament, of the entire Bible. 
One of the best-known phrases that Jesus ever said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What's happening here is, in microcosm, all of this dysfunction of scapegoating humanity. You see these people dragging this woman, this poor woman, out into public to expose her shame, to present her before Jesus. By the way, contrast that, for instance, with the four friends who bring their friend to Jesus who's paralyzed to have him healed. Contrast that with these people that are dragging this woman, presenting her to Jesus to to have him condemn her, to kill her. And of course, what they're actually doing is trying to put Jesus in a trap because either way he loses, right? Either way, if he says, no, no, be nice to her, then he's soft on the Mosaic law, then he's really not a prophet. And if he says, yeah, condemn her, then they can always say, he's just like everybody else, he's a scapegoater too. So how does Jesus disarm this scapegoating, destructive mob? He kneels down and starts writing in the sand. (laughs) This weird, strange detail. What does he start writing? Well, it doesn't say. St. Jerome said that he started writing all the mortal sins of everyone in the crowd. (laughs) Maybe he did. I don't know. He's God. After all, he could do it. But what he does is that he does not ignore the sin. He does not say, oh, no, 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 she didn't do it, or it doesn't really matter, I don't care about sin. He starts to point out the sin of everybody else. It's not by ignoring sin that Jesus disarms the scapegoaters. It's by pointing it out and forgiving it. It's through mercy that Jesus undoes this dysfunction. And then he has to create for this woman a way out, just as he does for every one of us sinners. We have to have a way that we can get rid of our guilt without having to just put it on somebody else, to actually get rid of it, so that it's not just this disease that we spread, but something that we can actually be cured of. And so Jesus takes it all on himself, just as the prodigal father last week took the sin of the son onto himself by embarrassing himself and running out to get him, to slaughter the fattened calf, to put a robe and a ring on his finger. So today, Jesus takes on the wrath of the crowd, and eventually he'll have to actually die and become the scapegoat, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But for now, he'll just take the wrath of the crowd. And he finds himself, and the woman finds herself, alone with each other. He says, does no one condemn you? Like he's surprised. He knows that every one of them has sinned and that none of them has a right to hold a stone and throw it at anybody else. But the woman finds herself face to face with Jesus. Have you ever done that? It sounds really nice, but it's actually kind of scary. Like in confession, for instance. Actually owning your sin. Not saying like, oh no, it's fine, I don't, everybody, everybody sins, or I can scapegoat somebody else, or nobody can judge me, but actually stand face to face with the judge and pray for mercy and ask him to forgive you, to hear the words, neither do I condemn you. Go and don't sin anymore. Finish with this. There's this one detail that John uh, gives in the gospel today. John, if you read the gospel of John, is very keyed into light and darkness. If somebody comes to Jesus in the darkness, it's usually bad. Jesus comes to somebody in the light, it's usually good. When does this happen? What time of day? It says early in the morning. This morning was a beautiful morning, wasn't it? It's finally getting nice out. The birds were chirping. I actually opened my window and listened and felt the breeze this morning. Morning is a a time of freshness, newness, endless possibilities. 
This is the first day of the rest of that woman's life. What led her to be in a situation where somebody caught her in the very act of committing adultery and then dragged her out to publicly shame her in front of a crowd? She almost died. She was almost stoned to death. And Jesus comes to her, disarms the mob, stands with her face to face, not ignoring her sin, but knowing her for who she is, who she really is, and loving her enough to say, I do not condemn you, I forgive you. Go and don't sin anymore. That's what God wants for all of us. To get us out of this loop of scapegoating, but to stand with him face to face and own our own sins and have them released through mercy and the way out who is Jesus.